0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Jewish Diaspora Report. On this week's episode, we look into the history of Zionism and how Zionism equals racism against the Jews. Let's get started. On the morning of the 15th of October, 1894, Alfred Dreyfus, a French army captain, is being interrogated and tortured in a French prison by the French military. The interrogator places a revolver in front of Dreyfus in hopes that he will take the opportunity to commit suicide. Dreyfus refused to take his own life, saying he, quote, wanted to live to establish his innocence. Dreyfus was accused of conspiring with the enemy and was told that he would be brought before a court-martial. Dreyfus was imprisoned in solitary confinement, and he was interrogated day and night in order to obtain a confession, which failed. This dramatic story will eventually lead to the Zionist movement in the state of Israel. But first, let's go back in time to 1862 and the start of Zionism. We will go back to what is known as the Dreyfus Affair in a moment. Moses Hess, an author and Jewish philosopher, wrote his book, Rome and Jerusalem, in 1862. In his book, he argued that the Jews were not a religious group, but rather a separate nation characterized by a unique religion whose universal significance should be recognized. The attempts of religious reformers to mold Jewish ceremonies into a version of Christianity left only the skeleton of a once-magnificent phenomenon in world history. The response, according to Hess, should be a political organization of Jews as well as the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine that would act as a spiritual center and base for political action embodying socialist principles within its institutions. In 1881, we see what is known as the First Aliyah. This followed pogroms in Russia in the early 1880s. Most of the immigrants during this period came from Eastern Europe. A small number also arrived from Yemen. Two early Zionist movements in the First Aliyah defined their goal as the political, national, and spiritual resurrection of the Jewish people in Palestine. In all, nearly 35,000 Jews came to Palestine during the First Aliyah, most of which were seeking safety in their former homeland. The settlement activity in Palestine was undertaken with the help of Baron Edmund de Rothschild, a French member of the Rothschild banking family, who had created an economic and national infrastructure upon which further immigration waves could be built. As Jewish immigrants are fleeing for the safety of Palestine, this brings us back to France in the 1890s and Captain Dreyfus. In a wave of anti-Semitism in France, Dreyfus is caught up in a scandal where as an assimilated Jew, he is accused of providing secrets to the enemy. After a note was found in the German embassy by a French spy suggesting that some unknown French person had been sharing military information with the enemy, as a high-up Jewish official in the military, Dreyfus was initially accused of being that informer. Jews were often still seen as outsiders no matter how assimilated they were, even putting their lives on the line for their country like Dreyfus. This did not hold them from suspicion as a spy. Dreyfus was put on trial in front of the country for being a spy, and on the 22nd of December 1894, after several hours of deliberation, the verdict was reached. Seven judges unanimously convicted Alfred Dreyfus of collusion with a foreign power to the maximum penalty of permanent exile in a walled fortification, also known as a prison. They also stripped him of his military ranks. Dreyfus would have been sentenced to death if it had not been abolished for political crimes since 1848. There were some attempts to discover the real culprit behind the treason. The system protected a non-Jewish military official who was more likely the person behind the act of treason. In 1898, in an interview with a British newspaper, this Frenchman claimed that he was actually behind the letter to the enemy that Dreyfus was imprisoned for. It was not until the 12th of July, 1906, that the Supreme Court of France unanimously canceled the judgment and pronounced the, quote, the end of the rehabilitation of Captain Dreyfus. Captain Dreyfus spent 12 years in prison simply for being a high-ranked Jew in the army, and therefore the most likely candidate for treason. Meanwhile, during the trial of Dreyfus in Paris, a young Hungarian journalist writing for a Viennese newspaper is in the crowd. This young Jewish journalist is named Theodor Herzl, the father of modern Zionism. Herzl himself stated that the Dreyfus case turned him into a Zionist, and that he was particularly affected by the chance quote, "...death to the Jews," in the crowd. He recognized a few things in that historic event. One, that Jews, no matter how assimilated or how loyal to their country, will always be viewed with suspicion and seen as outsiders. And two, the only place that will be safe for the Jews will be a homeland where Jews are the majority and in control of their own laws. Herzl writes in his book Der Judenstaat, or The Jewish State, that, quote, the Jewish question persists wherever Jews live in appreciable numbers. Wherever it does not exist, it is brought in together with Jewish immigrants. We are naturally drawn into those places where we are not persecuted, and our appearance then gives rise to persecution. This is the case and will inevitably be so. Everywhere, even in highly civilized countries, see, for instance, France, as long as the Jewish question is not solved on the political level. His book concludes, Therefore, I believe that a wondrous generation of Jews will spring into existence The Maccabeans will rise again. Let me repeat once more my opening words. The Jews who wish for a state will have it. We shall live at last as free men on our own soil and die peacefully in our own homes. The world will be freed by our liberty, enriched by our wealth, magnified by our greatness, and whatever we attempt there to accomplish for our own welfare will react powerfully and beneficially for the good of all of humanity." Herzl was one of the first proponents of Zionism and the goal of a safe homeland for the Jewish people of the world. He was the chairperson of the first Zionist conference in Basel, Switzerland, in 1897. He and 208 other Jewish world leaders got together to discuss, among other things, the formation of a Zionist platform, the foundation of a Zionist organization, the adoption of Hatikvah as its anthem, and the election of Herzl as the president of the Zionist organization. Herzl summed up the conference by saying, Quote, were I to sum up the Basel Congress in a word, at Basel I found the Jewish state. If I had said this out loud today, I would be greeted with universal laughter. In five years perhaps, and certainly in 50, everyone will perceive it. Herzl was not wrong, but he was only off by about one year. This statement was made in 1897. Fifty-one years later, there was indeed an independent state of Israel, a homeland to the Jewish people. Following the establishment of the official Zionist movement, the push began outwards to find sympathy from the growing movement and growing anti Semitic pogroms against the Jews around the world. Due to these pogroms, many Jews fled for the safety of Palestine under the Ottoman Empire, and more so as the British took control of the region following World War I. In 1917, as the British saw the growing insecurity for the Jews in Europe and the Jewish community in Palestine, offering those Jews from Europe a safe homeland, the New Zionist Movement attempted to have their Zionist ideas recognized by the world. The British government decided to endorse the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. After discussions within the cabinet and consultations with Jewish leaders, the decision was made by public letter from the British Foreign Secretary Lord Balfour to Lord Walter Rothschild. The contents of this letter became known as the Balfour Declaration. The letter states, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national homeland for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur James Balfour. Following the Balfour Declaration, the official British policy was to the eventual creation of a Jewish state for the safety and self-determination of the Jewish people around the world. Sadly, this did not go as well as the Zionist movement would have liked. Due to the local Arab populations, violence against Jews became a daily occurrence in British Palestine. Fearing further violence, the British instituted quotas on Jewish refugees entering Palestine from around the world. This became extremely dangerous in the 1930s as anti-Semitism grew in Europe and Jews attempted to find safety in British Palestine. Many were forbidden from entering and many were even sent back to their deaths. Palestinian Jewish community worked very hard to sneak in as many Jewish refugees as they could in order to save their lives. Following World War II, as the horrible picture of the Holocaust is revealed, the British did not remove their quotas to avoid angering the Arab nations. Many Jewish refugees from Europe had lost everything and began heading to British Palestine, where they were not only stopped by the British Navy, but transported to the British island of Cyprus where they were imprisoned. Finally, after the British realized that this was a losing battle, they transferred their control over Palestine to the UN for a future partition plan. And in 1948, the UN partition plan for Palestine was accepted and created in an independent state for the Jewish people. Herzl and many other Zionists' dreams finally came true, and Herzl himself, the father of Zionism, rests in the new state of Israel, on the mountain that's named after him, Mount Herzl. When we come back, we're going to see how Zionism somehow became racism over the last number of years. We'll be right back on the Jewish Diaspora Report. In the last segment, we learned a little bit about how Zionism started and that its intention and meaning has always simply been for the establishment of a Jewish state where Jews would be safe from the persecutions of the past. So if Zionism is simply the desire for a safe homeland, free of discrimination and persecution, how did it become synonymous with racism? If anything, the desire to be free from religious persecution is the exact opposite of racism. In 1997, the United States General Assembly initiated the World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerances. The meeting was held in Durban, South Africa in 2001. This first-of-its-kind conference brought together the world in hopes of addressing the largest issues that are found all over the world, the issues of racism and discrimination. The conference, also known as the Durban Conference, or Durban One, had an aim to become a landmark in the struggle of eradicating all forms of racism. Who would we imagine would chair such an incredibly world-changing and inspiring conference? Maybe the country of Canada, the self-proclaimed peacekeeping nation, maybe a progressive Nordic country. Unfortunately, no, these countries did not hold a candle to the real leader for human rights, anti-discrimination, and open-mindedness around the world, the country of Iran. So should we be surprised then when the Conference for Anti-Racism and Non-Discrimination degenerated into the hallmark anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism conference? In the preparatory meetings prior to Durban that took place, some countries tried to add to the text with references to Zionism equaling racism, and thus marking Israel as a racist state. This language was finally removed after the United States threatened to withdraw from the conference, which they ended up doing eventually. This showed that one of the main goals of this conference from its initiation was to single out the country of Israel. In addition to the United States withdrawing from the conference, Due to the conference's intention on focusing on Israel and having the world's worst perpetrators of discrimination and hate running the conference, nine other countries boycotted the conference, and five participated in limited fashion along with the European Union. Canada was the first country to refuse to participate and is quoted as saying that the conference "...degenerated into open and divisive expression of intolerance and anti-Semitism, and that it undermined the principles of the United Nations and the very goals of the conference..." To show that it was not just a one-off and some type of mistake or an oversight, a review of Durban took place in 2009. This time Iran was not asked to chair the review, but fellow human rights warrior Muammar Gaddafi of Libya was this time in charge of the conference, no doubt ensuring that human rights and discrimination... And just in case the intent of this 2009 conference wasn't overt enough, a parallel conference took place at the same time with non-governmental organizations who were not able to attend the official conference with the world leaders. Palestinian and anti-Israel NGOs, or non-government organizations, held parallel meetings to official events entitled, Israel Review Conference. The anti-Israel conference was organized by the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network, the International Coordinating Network on Palestine, and the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction, or BDS, committee, and was attended by some 160 participants. Clearly, these meetings were never intended on improving world issues, but simply having an Arab voting bloc and anti-Israel NGOs combining strength to pick on the one democratic country in the Middle East. For context on what was happening in the world at the time, in the months leading up to the conference in 2001, 17 Israelis were murdered and over 130 people were hurt in Palestinian attacks on civilians in Israel. None of this, of course, was even mentioned in the conference against, quote, racism and intolerance. These conferences only spoke positively about the Palestinian people and officially named them victims in this situation. Keep in mind at this time, Israel is in the middle of the Second Intifada, where daily suicide bombings were happening in the streets of Israel. Innocent civilians fear death with just simply running errands or going to work. And none of these raised any flags enough to mention at a summit for anti-racism and anti-intolerance. Back in 2001, during the first Durban conference... Some delegates voted to reject the language that implicitly accused Israel of racism. Several countries were unhappy with the final text's approach to the subject, but all for different reasons. Syria and Iran were unhappy because their demands for the language about racism and Israel had been rejected by the conference. The latter continued to insist that Israel is a racist state. Australia was unhappy with the process, observing that, quote, Far too much of the time at this conference had been consumed by bitter divisive exchanges on issues which have done nothing to advance the cause of combating racism. Canada also was unhappy with the language. The language of the final text was carefully drafted for balance. The word diaspora is only used four times and solely refers to African diaspora. The document is at pains to maintain a cohesive identity for anyone of African heritage as a victim of slavery even including those who may have more European than African ancestors. This, of course, ignores the Jewish diaspora completely. The word Jewish is only used once, alongside Muslim and Arab, and anti-Semitism is only used twice, once alongside its assumed counterpart, Islamophobia, and once alongside anti-Arabism. This was the first time we saw this idea presented by the Arab world and filtered through the UN mouthpiece that, quote, Zionism equals racism. This is also the first time we see the idea that anti-Semitism should always be coupled with Islamophobia when discussing issues of racism, as if these two things cannot be mutually exclusive. Think about it yourself. How many times have you seen people talking in an HR conference that Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are always somehow connected? as if one cannot exist without the other. None of this, of course, was by accident. This is all pre-planned and purposeful. First, we remove the diaspora aspect of the Jewish heritage, therefore taking away any Jewish rights to their homeland. We've seen this specific action in the idea that Israel is a colonizer of the land that was once theirs. Here we can see the direct link from the talking points at Durban, to what's happening on the ground today. Also, by removing the diaspora aspect, we single out Jewish communities specifically and ignore the fact that anti-Semitism is a worldwide issue, no matter what country people are in, and that it affects an entire diaspora population. We also see the forever coupling of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. I believe that this is, of course, to shift the blame as if always reminding people that anti-Semitism cannot be done by people who are also discriminated against, like the Muslims. As if Muslims, of course, don't perpetuate any type of anti-Semitism. Of course, I'm left wondering why the Palestinian demand and hope and prayer for a homeland of their own with safety and security and prosperity is not considered a racist idea. But for some reason, the Jews wanting their own homeland is automatically racist. I guess it really is just the typical double standard that we're used to when it comes to Israel. In the end, we can see that Zionism really just means a plan to have a Jewish homeland that protects Jewish people from the persecution and hate that seems to follow them wherever they go. We also see that the Durban conference, claiming to be an attempt to solve the issues of racism and discrimination, was always intending on just being racist and discriminating against Israel and the Jewish people. Since Arab armies were unable to harm Israel through conventional wars or economically, the next goal was to try and use the United Nations as a weapon against the only Jewish state. Sadly, this worked far too well in alienating Israel in the UN, the media, and amongst the left. At Durban, it was officially declared that the Palestinians are perpetual victims of this situation. Since the Durban conferences and the official policies of the UN were hijacked by the Arab voting blocs, and the anti-Israel NGO organizations, Zionism has definitely begun to equate with racism, as the Durban conference intended. Unfortunately for them, it is very clear that Zionism has equaled racism, except it's racism against the Jews and their Jewish homeland. This has been another episode of the Jewish Diaspora Report. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check us out on social media at jdr.podcast. And check out some of our other episodes on your favorite podcast source. We'll see you next time.